Father, open your word, this very significant passage about your good purposes, that we might understand your call on our life as people who follow Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Uh, for many years, I served on the Baptist Association Committee for Ministry. This is a committee of people who basically interview, and we do a, did a few other things, but biggest job was to interview people who were applying to be Baptist accredited ministers. In other words, to become a Baptist reverend, uh, a formally accredited, recognised minister with, amongst Baptist churches. So these were all people who had felt a call into Christian ministry. And our role on the committee was to assess that call. We considered their, gifted, their giftedness, their godliness, the capacity that they had in their life for ministry. We, we, listened, we worked hard to find out if there was affirmation from their church and from other Christians to say, yes, this person's suitable for Christian ministry. That was our job. Is this person suitable for ministry? And it was interesting. Ben said, you know, God calls for a period and then maybe call you into something else. There's that sense of call. But, you know, that is not how God calls people generally in the Bible. When God called someone in the Bible, it was unmistakable. There was no committee. God revealed himself and then he assigned a responsibility and then gave them the reason for their calling their unique role. So, for instance, if we go to Abram, Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, he just sort of appeared, Abram's in, in, in Haran North, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, here's the call, and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you his, what we're coming to, the responsibility and the reasons, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The whole earth is going to be blessed through Abraham's descendants. It's a big call. God's going to reverse the effects of sin. He establishes a covenant promises and he says, I'm going to bless through you, Abram. Get to Moses in the Exodus and Moses is out in the wilderness and suddenly he sees a burning bush that's not burning and he approaches and the Lord says, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. Take off your shoes. The Lord says to Moses, I've seen the suffering of my people in Egypt as slaves. We get to chapter 3, verse 10. The Lord says to Moses, this is his call, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, oh, what's this call? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? What's, what's this call you're putting on my life? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. Here's my sign for your calling. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain there's Moses's call he called the prophet Isaiah in the temple he called the prophet Jeremiah Jeremiah Jesus called his two disciples James and John and says follow me and I'm going to make you fish for people unmistakable calls so if an angel should come to you and call you you better listen carefully 
But, you know, of all those people we interviewed in our accreditation interviews, not one of them ever said an angel came to me or the Lord spoke in this way. It's not normative, these callings we read in the Bible. So does God call us today? And if so, how? We're starting a new series from the book of Exodus, verses 19 to 24, which I've given to the title, part of our belong theme really, Gathered at the Mountain, the people of God at the Mountain of God. And it starts, this whole passage in chapter 19, which Serene read, starts with God's call on Israel, his people. God reveals himself to Israel. He outlines their responsibilities. And then he tells them the reason he has called them. In fact, the whole of the Exodus narrative, the whole story of Exodus, indeed the whole Bible story since the flood, has been heading to this moment. When Israel gathers at the mountain, Mount Sinai. See, God called Abraham into a covenant and said, Abraham, through your descendants, I'm going to bless the entire world. You'll be a great nation, Abram. God called Moses and God said, I will be with you and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, which has already happened, you will worship God on this mountain, the very same mountain they're gathered at. When the Lord Moses spoke to Pharaoh the words of the Lord, the word was, let my people go that they may worship me. It's all focused towards this point because now Abram's descendants come to worship Lord at that very mountain where the Lord first appeared to Moses and revealed himself to Moses. And the Lord, just as he called Moses to his mission, so he now calls the whole people, this vast assembly, this nation, to their mission. And so foundational, actually, this passage is so foundational that when David Starling at our church camp spoke on peculiar people, he started with this passage. It's so foundational that... Not only does the whole of Exodus and the story focus towards this point, but when Peter, the Apostle Peter, speaks to the church, he says, he refers to this passage. He says, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, you Christians. You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now... You're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now God's mercy has come upon you. This is a foundational passage that we're looking at today in God's purposes. Israel's calling, we are to understand in the light of Jesus, is, is, is also, as the people of God, our calling. So I'd like us to consider the revelation of God in this calling the responsibilities of Israel, and the reason God calls his people, because they're applicable to us, I believe. Start with God's revealing himself. Same God that appeared to Moses and revealed himself to Moses now reveals himself to Israel. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, 
On that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Which God called them? Why have they stopped there? What's going on? Well, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. I've done this in colours. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see the colours that I've got there? They're verbs. Verbs are the action words, the doing type of words in the sentence. There are four verbs in this sentence. The first one refers to Israel and what they have must do, or what they've done. You yourselves have seen. What did Israel do? They just saw God revealed himself and they just saw God reveal himself. In a sense, they did nothing but see. What did God do? You have seen what I did to Egypt. Egypt was the oppressor. They were in slavery. They could not save themselves. They could not overthrow the Egyptian masters. So God brought ten plagues on Egypt. Let my people go and Pharaoh resisted. Finally he let them go and they came to the Red Sea and the armies hunting them down and God opens the sea and they pass through and the waters fall in on the chasing Egyptians. There's judgment and salvation. There is overthrow and with that there is freedom and they sing a victory song of celebration. God saved them from their enemy. Next verb, and how I carried you on eagles' wings. Anna and I, we were out walking early in the morning the other day, and we're just walking down past the hockey field in Penny Hills Park. It's still dark. And there sitting on a reflector light thing, one of those little reflectors, was a powerful owl. We're on the road, walking by. I've got my little headlight on so I can see where we're going. And we turn around and there's the owl just there sitting on the reflector light. I go to grab my phone to take a photo. This is so cool. And he doesn't want his photo taken, so he flies away. I've seen three powerful owls. That's the third time I've seen one. That's the closest. The other two times I saw just like this photo where it had a possum. Because they, they catch and eat possums. They're the biggest owl in Australia. They live just there and just there in the bush around us. So impressive to see them. See a powerful owl. But you know, a powerful owl is like a pussycat compared to a lion when you compare it with an eagle. I've seen a wedge-tailed eagle sitting on a sheep's hide, a fresh sheep's hide, up close in the wild, and it's like, whoa. An eagle is strong and powerful and independent and fearsome and free does what he wants. God carried Israel on eagles' wings. It's all God. It's all his power. Israel are like 
caught in the talons. And God carries them, fearful and independent and free and powerful. They are helpless. They are carried. They have no boast but to boast in the Lord for their salvation out of Egypt. And God brought them to himself into relationship, into love, out of slavery and darkness, into his kingdom of freedom and light. And with God gathered at the mountain, they are now under his care and his rule. It's all according to what God promised in the promises to Abraham and Moses. It's all because of God's grace. And all that Israel did, well, when they were in Egypt, they just groaned. Life's miserable. And then when they're saved out of Egypt in the time in the wilderness, they complain. And say, why don't we go back to Egypt because there's lots of food in Egypt. Oh, yummy food. Now they are gathered together and God reminds them of the revelation he has shown them. All that I have done for you. Remember my promises and my power and my mercy and my faithfulness. And now gather and worship me. I am your God. You are my people. That's the revelation of God. You know, it's just the same with us. It's all grace. It's all God's work that we have any claim on salvation. (coughs) By ourselves, we are completely helpless. God has revealed himself in his son, Jesus, our saviour, who is the word of God, the revelation of God. And through his death and resurrection, he has conquered the enemy, Satan and death. And he sets us free from slavery to sin and the grave and the dominion of darkness. He lifts us from the depths out of the miry clay and calls us to himself in Christ Jesus and fills us with his spirit so he is with us. We gather. We are called to belong in his family. We find our place in the family of God because of what he has done in calling us. There's those old hymns, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling to you and to me. Come home, come home. If you're weary, come home. God calls us to himself in Jesus when we see who Jesus is. Or just as I am without one plea, but that thou son's blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. You call me and I come because I see who Jesus is for me. I see what he's done. You've revealed him. And that, if you do respond to that call, brings about a mighty change and new responsibilities. But before we consider the responsibilities that Israel's called to and that I think we're called to, I just want you to notice something very important. In this passage, I'll put it up on the screen, but if you've got it in your Bibles, just have a look. You'll notice that verse 4 comes before verse 5. Okay? And that's very, very important. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Verse 5, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant or listen really carefully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. 
<coughs> Deliverance precedes demand. Liberty goes before the law. God does not say, if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then I will rescue you from your enemies and carry you on eagle's wing and bring you to myself. He doesn't say that. Grace leads the way. God saves. We don't earn our salvation. But when God saves us and calls us to himself into a new relationship, that new relationship brings responsibility because Jesus is Lord. And if he's Lord, then he's Lord. And that brings responsibilities. Our newfound freedom is enjoyed by obedience and faithfulness. A couple of years ago, we, this year's theme is belong. You're off that place in the family of God. Two years ago, we had this theme. Hear, believe, obey. They are our responsibilities. Hear the word of God, believe the word of God, obey the word of God. It's quite simple. Same with Israel. Our temptation is we keep wanting to go back to Egypt thinking it's better there because we don't really want to listen and obey God and hear him. But in Egypt there is death and oppression and slavery. As God's people brought to him by his grace, we are to hear, believe and obey. But there is another responsibility in this passage, not just to hear, believe and obey. There's another responsibility which you may miss there in verse 5 because it often isn't seen as a responsibility. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. You'll be the king's royal property, is the idea there. You'll be the king's glory. That is what you and I are in Christ. Treasured. We are valued. But you know, a treasure or something of value is the, the worth of something is always determined by the person. We give value. Have you ever watched American pickers? They look, they go around and they find these signs, and someone says, Oh, that's worth seven hundred dollars. Because somebody, like, I think that's, that's valuable to me. Oh, no, I'm not going to sell that for $700 because that's worth more to me than $700. Some beat up sign. They give value to it. So let me show you. I've got my wedding ring here. It's 22 karat gold from Singapore. Um, very heavy. It took a long time to learn how to clap. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Um, <clears throat> it weighs seven grams. I, I weighed it yesterday. You know, gold is worth $7 a gram at the moment. Do the sums. Keep away from my ring. It's just a lump of metal. I've got lumps of metal lying in my garden that I don't care about. It's just a lump of metal. No, no, it's a precious metal. It's worth four to $500. Oh, I take away a bit for fees. I know, but it's worth a lot of money. But you know how much it's worth? You offer me $500 for my wedding ring? You ain't. You offer me $10,000 for my wedding ring, you're not getting it. You offer me a million dollars for my wedding ring, run away. My wedding ring has so much more value because it's my treasured possession, because it symbolizes relationship, it symbolizes love. For me, it symbolizes security and hope. 
You are not buying my wedding ring. It is precious to me. God tells his people that he has conquered in battle for, that he has carried and brought to himself, you're my treasured possession. Wouldn't swap you for anything. My people at Penno, God says, you are my treasured possession. My great delight. I've redeemed you with the precious blood of my son. You are mine. You're worth everything to me. And our responsibility is to know that love and live in that love and be restored, therefore, by the love of God for us. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, I pray for you that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Paul says, oh, I'm really praying that you might know how much Jesus loves you. How big it is. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Our responsibility is to live in the love of God and to grow in our knowledge of the love of God. Because that's transformative. If I'm in the garden, I think this has happened. I'm in the garden, I'm working in the garden, my ring slips off. It's heavy, it's slippery. I am looking for my wedding ring and when I pick it up, it's covered in clay and dirt and slime and I am so happy. And I go and I clean it up and I put it back on and I'm happy. If my wedding ring fell in the sewer, you know what I'd be doing? My hand would be straight down in that sewer searching everywhere amongst the muck for my wedding ring and I'd pull it up and it'd be filthy and putrid and I'd clean it all up and I'd put it back on my finger and have it with me all the time because it's treasured, it's possession. I'd be so glad that I found my wedding ring. I wouldn't care about the sewer. I'd find joy in restoration. That's what God sees you like when you fall. You know the parable of the lost coin? That's how God sees you. He chases you down. The lost sheep, oh, I found my lost sheep. The lost son, the prodigal son, oh, the joy of the father. He loves us so much. And our responsibility when we fall is to remember how much God loves us, how precious we are. And so we repent and we seek his cleansing in Christ. And we get back to business and God rejoices. Treasured possession, that's your responsibility. So important. It's so important to be restored back to relationship with God in his love because God has a purpose for calling you and I. There's a reason he's assigned us these responsibilities to hear, believe and obey and rejoice in his love. You see, just like Israel was, we are called to reveal God's goodness and his glory to a watching world. So Moses goes on. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice, 
and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Tell them what they're the reason. They're to be a kingdom of priests for me, a holy nation. In other words, they're to mediate as a kingdom of priests to the nations. They're to represent God to the peoples and the peoples to the living God, the nations. They're to be a holy nation that is set apart where people can see God's goodness and God's rule worked out in community. That they might reveal God's glory, that others may be drawn to that glory. And so that they're being drawn in, they may also belong to God's kingdom. Be set free from slavery and death. God called Abram that through his descendants he would bless the whole world. Israel is caught up in that covenant promise. Do you notice though that God does not say, even in being a treasured possession, he does not say do this and do that. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There is no emphasis on activity. The commands will come soon. As we continue in Exodus, there is going to be law to follow, doing to do and things not to do. But for now, he says, you shall be. Because God's treasured possession is not about activity and vision and plans and achievement. God's purposes are not wrought through our activity Our first priority must be to be the people of God, representing God's character in obedience and faith. Christians and churches are like icebergs. It's not what shows up at the top that really, really matters. The great weight is often usually hidden. But there is no iceberg without that great weight. And if you don't have that great weight, well, you'll just fall over or you'll dissipate. Everything about us as the people of God should be hidden below the surface, should be deep in who we are as the people of God, not in the activities that we do that people can see. You want to bless the nations? Be an iceberg. And the nations will only see the top and they'll be blessed by the top, but you've got to be an iceberg first with most of it hidden in Christ, in your relationship with God. Peter says, Peter puts it this way, you are a chosen people. You're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You've got to be those things first. He then says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. It's not about being on mission that really counts. It's it's, it's abstaining from the sinful desires and then living such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What's the power of bubbles if there is any power? What do we really want from the power of bubbles? We want 
People who love Jesus serving others. doesn't matter how good our cars and our toys. It does. It helps to have good cars and toys. It helps to have a good program. But the most powerful thing about bubbles is the people who are God's treasured possession who turn up and run it and build relationships and love and care and listen and serve. I think we get it wrong often with this idea of mission. We all worry about what we're doing. How are we going to do this ministry? How are we going to go on this mission? I've heard churches, people in declining churches say, if only we have a youth pastor or we just need a youth program, that'll get the church back. If only we had more outreach. The problem with our church is we're not doing enough outreach. And I really want to say the problem is you don't love Jesus enough. The problem is you're fighting with one another. The problem is you don't have a heart to give and to serve. The problem is you're just tarnished as God's treasured possession and it just doesn't work. You don't need a youth pastor. You need to be transformed. You need to get back to what Jesus has done for you. First, be a healthy church. If, if we do, under God, and I pray that this does happen, we do get opportunity to send a team to Eastwood for a new start. There'll be lots of planning, but the most important thing that you can take to a new church is love for the saints and love for the world and love for Jesus and his word. Don't get distracted by activity. Yes, the activity flows out of the love, as it does with bubbles, that's not where the power is. Israel is called to be God's treasured possession, as says Peter, we are. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. All that stuff we've looked at and the people responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. We will keep covenant. We will hear, believe, obey. We'll be treasured. We'll know it. We'll be priests. We'll be holy. We'll be the light, to use Jesus' words, we'll be the light of the world. We will shine. Exodus 32, a few chapters later. They're still at the mountain. Moses has been up on the mountain a while with God. Goodness knows, what's he doing? And the people, rather than being content to be and shine, think they better do something. So they decide, let's make, get our jewellery together and make a golden calf that we can worship the Lord. They reject God by doing so. Moses comes down from the mountain, the mountain where they've been called together to serve and worship the Lord, and he sees them serving and worshipping a calf, an idol, he can't believe it. And Moses said to the people who are running wild, saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. When they stop being, not a lighthouse, a laughing stock because they fail to keep covenant. And throughout Israel's history, they repeat the pattern. 
They don't hold to their commitment. They, became a sh- they become a shame. They become a reproach among the nations. Psalm 34 puts it like this, Lord, you've made us a reproach to our neighbours, the scorn and derision of those around us. People are laughing. You've made us a byword amongst the nations. The people shake their heads at us. Israel has no light, no hope, no power, no dignity, no witness. They're just an object of scorn. A hopeless, pathetic nation serving what would seem to be a hopeless and pathetic God. But God is faithful to his promises. He takes his prophet Isaiah and he speaks to him and promises restoration through a servant. Isaiah 49. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, says the Lord, to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will make you my servant, says says the Lord. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth, just as I promised Abram. I'm going to do this through my servant, says the, the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. This work that Israel's failed at. When Jesus is born... Not long after all, he's an infant. Simeon comes to him in the temple and he sees the infant Jesus and he bursts in a song and says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes, seeing this baby, have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, the nations, and the glory of your people Israel. Here is hope. In the servant of God, Jesus, the suffering servant, the light of the world, the hope for blessing. And as he is revealed, as we come to Jesus by faith, so we become the body of Christ in church. And guess what we become? It actually says this in Acts chapter 9 about the church, or 19. We become a light for revelation to the nations. And the glory of God's people, Israel. So Peter says of us, you and me, Exodus 19, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's treasured possession. That you may declare the praises who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter goes on and says, Live such good life amongst the pagans that they may accuse you of doing wrong. They will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us because we're letting the light shine. Jesus said to his disciples, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men so they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let your light shine. And you do that by being holy and righteous and keeping covenant. So has God called us? Does, has God called you? If you are in Christ, he has called you to be his people. And we do that in community, powerfully, through good deeds of justice and righteousness. 
And so God's church should not be a laughing stock. And I tell you what, when God's church gets it wrong, as it often does, it becomes a laughing stock amongst the nations. We do it not as being a laughing stock, but as a lighthouse. So before you ask, am I called to be a pastor or an elder or a missionary or a Sunday school teacher? Just remember this, God has called you today to be his treasured possession. Holy and clean and pure. In community. Loved beyond love. Saved by grace and grace alone. Called to faithful obedience so that you shine and bless the nations. As part of a community marked by grace and sacrifice. And so bring glory to our Saviour. That is the call of God. Actually, it's just a call to belong and find our place in God's family. And let God's kingdom purposes shine. Let me pray. Father, keep us from self-service. Keep us from thinking that we can earn your way, our way into your good purposes, that we can do and so be powerful without you. Help us to rest in your love and let that transform us by the power of your spirit, we ask in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.